Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I've done 80 of these, and this is the most shambolic it's ever been. And I take that as a great compliment that it's me. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, and entertainment, who are here to share their wisdom and their use of humour with you. Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business success and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm just going to relax into this because it's going to be fun. Embrace the chaos. The good thing is that whatever we don't want in it, David is an editor who has obviously, like we said, done films. So he's going to make us look decent anyway. I, I always think, Paul, keep it all in who wants to look decent i want to look human so keep you keep it all in and by the way you can ask me anything you want okay there is there is nothing off limits today so i'm just i'm just thrilled okay. that you asked me to be in it can i tell you because i went through the long list of names of people you've had and the one i mean it's, it's a very impressive list the one that made me go oh i'm definitely doing this you've had clive bullon I have, and I know Clive. It, I uh, genuinely think, and I've said this, to, I don't know if I've said it to him, but I, this I, this is not in any word of a lie. I genuinely think Clive is Britain's greatest radio broadcaster, without without oh. a shadow of a doubt. I, he, is, he is the best. He's been such an inspiration for me. And, oh, that's um, so sweet. He's, so, he's just so good. And he can do any style. He can do the straight phone in, you know, what's your favorite suite? He can do the surreal, stupid stuff. He can do the heavy news stuff. You know, the Sven from Swiss Cottage calls oh, Peter Cook. The Peter Cook, yeah. But honestly, I, I, I really think that at some point everyone will recognize Clive is the best. The best. No, well, I agree. I think he's absolutely superb, and and also nothing phases him. You've no. been round the studio with him. Yeah. He's just, you know, yeah. I, we were doing something once, and somebody did that thing of ringing in and taking you way down the line, and yeah. um, before they pulled the car rug from under you, and uh, he just didn't miss a beat, no. and he just went, "Well, he's da yeah. da da da." So good, that. so good. I think it's always nice to to say nice things to people. And and actually, I mean, I'm really, really keen that we just have a nice chat. Yeah. But I, I honestly, I'm really interested in the fact that you are now going over to counselling because oh. obviously I've, I do a lot of training and a, a lot of executive coaching yeah. uh, now. And I came from that show business background and made that big leap. So it's just really interesting for yeah. me that you're, you're doing that. A lot of people well. do it. A lot of people go get either jaded or, you know, the, the, the showbiz is fashion. So some people, some people have a career that lasts forever. Some people have five, 10, 15, 20 years, and then they get, you know, that no one wants to employ them anymore. And that's, that's okay. I think there will be uh, people knocking at your door because what you do is so unique that uh, people will come back to you. But we Maybe. can talk about this. Have we, and, and have we started yet? Are we in? No, we oh, I'll shut up. I'll shut up then. Let's go. Right. I'll shut up. You go. <laughs> 
fun. So anyway, I'll do a right. thing. Uh, welcome to the Humorology podcast. Then I'm going to go. My guest on this edition is that is uh, Ian Lee. Uh, but my outline will be Ian Lee. Welcome to the Humorology podcast. Okay. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is a broadcaster and award-winning radio presenter. He's presented shows such as The Eleven O'Clock Show, Rise and Big Brother's Bit on the Psych. Whilst his work on BBC Radio, LBC and Talk Radio has earned him national renown as a captivating and comedic radio personality. In 2017, he appeared on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, where he went from a vote of no confidence from his fellow campmates all the way to the final, where he finished third. He has recently shifted his focus from his radio career into a life of counselling. His long list of credits on radio and TV is very impressive, but not as impressive as his newfound passion for mental health and helping others. Ian Lee, welcome to the Humorology podcast. Stuart Lee, that's why he said Stuart. Yeah, I think he did. Now I've got yeah. it. Okay, all right. I do apologise for your much. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been called so much worse, David. So please, don't need to apologize. Right, fingers on uh, lips. Uh, Ian Lee, welcome to the Humorology podcast. Hello, Paul. It's nice, nice to meet you. I'm giggling. The, the listener won't know this, but we we've had thirty minutes of technical issues. That's why. I've got, <laughs> so I, I feel silly pretending that we've just met. We've been in each other's company for a while. <laughs> While you've been fiddling with a computer, it's been nice to see because I do the same thing. Well, yeah. Well, the the truth is, dear <laughs> listener, that we we lost all the notes to everything we've done. So we're now just going to have a fun chat ar around things, I th which I think is nice. You know, notes are great and all of that. But let you know, let's just um, let's just talk and see what happens. Could be a could be wonderful or it could be a disaster. You're you're in for a ride, dear listener. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, I couldn't be taking a ride with anybody better because you. you were the king of turning up with nothing to say and managing to fill three hours beautifully. On a good day. I, I yeah, my for those who don't know, I've done phony shows for the last, geez, over 20 years. And um, uh, yeah, my my stick was eventually not, you know, what do you think about Brexit or, or getting two opposing people on to argue? I would go in, as you say, with nothing. I, I didn't know what the word prep meant or preparation, you know, and I would go in with nothing generally and would open up the phone lines and would get some wonderful, wonderful calls. I remember once, Paul, I worked at um, BBC WM and I was doing a show on a Friday afternoon about two o'clock and there was a new boss had taken over. And she said, Ian, what's on your show today? I said, I have absolutely no idea. This was 10 minutes before the show. She said, well, you're, you're about to go on. What, how are you gonna do it? I said, something will happen. When I put that fader up, something will strike and we'll have a show. And she and um, a lot of other people couldn't comprehend how that works. How are you not going into a studio with copious notes? How are you not going into the studio with, um, you know, full of newspapers and stuff? So yes, um, I'm just turning my heated blanket off because I'm getting quite warm. Um, and I'm an old man. So yes, Paul, I will go in. Well, as you can see, I've, I've taken 10 minutes to answer a question that should have taken 30 seconds. You're going to get a lot of that today, I'm afraid. Well, no, that's perfect, because what you're talking about is uh, a kind of a trust exercise. And when I talk um, to audiences, I always say that the best speakers in the world are the ones who just engage with the other person yeah. or the microphone, in your case, and speak because the, the difference between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind, as you will know, because you're now uh, studied counselling, is that the conscious mind can hold only hold between five and nine pieces of information, yeah. but the unconscious can hold millions. Yeah. And yeah. so what you're doing is what you're doing is just allowing the unconscious to come forward, isn't it? It is. You know, I got diagnosed, if that's the right word, as a, a couple of years ago as bipolar and ADHD. And the ADHD was a revelation. First of all, it explained explained my struggle to you know keep relationships going. It explained why I was considered thick and naughty at school just because I couldn't focus. But it also explained 
my style of radio because I will go off on a, you know, I will start a sentence talking about, um, oh, do you believe in ghosts? Let's put that out. And five minutes later, I'm talking about having a fist fight with Paul McCartney. And, and it, one of the joys about my radio career is I've had some wonderfully generous bosses that have let me go off on those tangents, that have, have let me go on those flights of fancy. And I can trace that back to the fact that I am ADHD. And I've got, you know, I'm, I'm, re I'm struggling a little bit to stay focused in this conversation with you and not, you know, fire off in a thousand directions. Well, but, but you see, I think that all these things that people are uh, given, you know, ADHD, dyspraxia, dyslexia mm. and everything, I think they're very often talents. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a different way that the, the brain's coding, but the system's never built for the people who are yeah. outliers. The system's built for everybody, you know, to sit in rows in, in schools and everything. Yeah. Whereas the really creative people are a bit outlier. Uh, their society is not built for neurodiversity. Um, and, you know, I was a teenager, I was a kid in the late 70s and the 80s. We didn't even know what dyslexia was there, you know, so let alone ADHD. But now, um, schools now are so much better at recognizing neurodiversity, ADHD, I've got a cat climbing on me, ignore her, um, you know, <laughs> dyspraxia, dyslexia, all of these things. And quite often there is accommodation for those things. I didn't have that. You know, school was really, really tough for me. Never mind. I, I, I'm, I'm where I am now. Um, but yeah, for me, um, the, the ADHD is, is kind of a superpower. Now I know what it is. Now I know how to utilize it. Yeah, love it. Well, we talked about school. Let's go just back slightly. Yes. Uh, I know that you were brought up with two parents who, who got divorced yeah. quite early, as did mine. Yeah. And so that may for psychologists out there explain why we both have what your mate James O'Brien used to call the show off gene. Yes. Um, is it is it maybe about, you know, having to get attention. But the Jesuits say, give me a child of seven and I will give you the man. Yeah. Is would that be true of you at seven at school? I when I look back on my school, I'm not very proud of it. Okay. Throughout from about seven onwards, I was bullied. So the way I dealt with that was to also bully other people. My school record is not, is uh, behavior is not something I'm particularly proud of. And it's something I'm addressing as I get older and making amends wherever it's possible. I'm going to, you know, 12 step recovery program. So that so there is an element of that. Um, but I, it, it's that thing, Paul, that people don't often understand, right? I was really shy and insecure and um, self-loathing is probably a little bit strong for seven, but I, I didn't like myself. So to compensate for that shyness, I would go extrovert and I would go loud. Now that sounds counterintuitive. Well, how can you do that if you're shy? But it's a coping mechanism that my brain created. You don't like yourself. You feel inadequate. You can't make eye contact with people. So just be really, really loud and outrageous. And, and that's kind of where that came from. There is a phrase, I don't know if you've heard it, it that um, shy, uh, shyness, a uh, performance rather, is the shy person's revenge on the world. Oh, I've not heard that, but that's good. I like that. Yeah. That sometimes you have to get it out in different places. And it reminds me of that whole Billy Crystal uh, thing, what he said about Robin Williams, that, that he needed those extra little hugs that he could only right. get from strangers. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, God, that's so profound. Yeah. Isn't it that, you, you know, you can't find it because I, I think I've heard you talk about that. You sometimes feel awkward in one to one or in oh, rooms yeah. of people. Yeah. But radio, you feel comfortable. In. I can. St I've stood on the, the, the stage of the one of the coolest things I ever did was standing on the stage at the Royal Albert Hall and saying, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the who. And I got to introduce the who. Right. That's in front of 5,000 people. And there were people being idiots in there and I could tell them to shut up. That's not a problem because I've got a microphone. But um, this is not a problem because it's performative because I'm sat in front of a microphone. If we were sat in a coffee shop, Paul, just having a chat, I would struggle with that. I would feel very, very uncomfortable. I would be thinking, right, what is the earliest I can get out of this and not look rude? You know, I'm getting better at it as I get older, but it is not a natural thing for me. And sitting in a radio studio you know i can be in an office 
and there's people there and I can't look or talk at them, talk to them. But as soon as I get into the studio and the fader goes on, boom, we're in performance mode. This is really, really easy. I know what to do with a microphone. I know how to get people excited or angry or upset or emotional or whatever, and to then persuade those people to call in. That was my trick. I didn't really like doing music radio the few times I did it. My favorite radio is 10 till one at night because something magic happens around about half past 11 on radio. Something magic happens that you can't do on a breakfast show or a drive show. And I like people to call in and talk to me because it takes something very special for someone at quarter past 12 in the morning or at night to think, I'm going to phone up this guy I've never spoken to on the radio and tell him about um, the time I nearly ran over Elton John. That's a real call. Or the t or the or tell him the f I can't stop drinking. Or, you know, whatever. That, that, that for me is where the magic is. That to me is bizarre because uh, obviously my background in sort of psychology and NLP, yeah. I'm always thinking like, why would somebody not be able to take that performative thing and use it in a coffee shop? It really feels like I miss the day at school where everyone was taught how to do small talk and how to interact with people. So I am learning to do it. A lot of it is faking it to make it, you know, um, and I've kind of learned the script of small talk. Oh, I'm supposed to ask you what you do for a living. And if you have family and I'm supposed to nod and, you know, and I think, I think it is for me, I think it's the ADHD side of me. And I've spoken to, I work with a lot of people who are, um, uh, uh, ADHD. And I think that is part of it. There will be people who aren't ADHD that still struggle with that. But for me, it's, it's that thing of, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to say to you. And that's weird. And that for a long time kept me isolated. I wouldn't put myself in those positions where I might be in, in a conversation with someone that, uh, I, I don't know because, because I don't know what to say. Here's another thing, Paul, I don't recognize faces and I never remember names. So I really, really struggle with faces and it's down to my partner to go, someone will come and I'll say, someone's walking towards me, do I know them? Yes, you work with them. Okay, hey, and sh she will remember their name. And I, I, I struggle with faces, there's a, there's a word for it. I can never remember what the word is. Matt Lucas has it as well. So I did it once with one of my kids. I was, um, this was a couple of years ago, so Kim would have been about nine. And I'm, I parked the car and there's a kid and I start waving at this kid, right? And pulling silly faces. And as I get close, I think, oh God, I don't think that's my son. And I had to get up right, really close before it clicked. Yes, it was my son, so it was okay. But yeah, um, yeah faces and names, I, I really, really struggle with. But is that what started to fascinate you with uh, the counseling is, was it partly about working out who you were oh. and, if you could help other people. Do you know what? That's a really good thing, working out who you were. And I hadn't thought of it that way. And yes, I've been very lucky that on my radio shows, I have been allowed to grow and learn about myself as part of the show, right? So I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic, and I was able to discuss that on the show. I was able to talk about relapses on the show. A few years ago, um, during some intense therapy, it, I've worked out that I'm bisexual and I was able to announce that on, you know, to discuss that on the show, not announce it sounds pompous, but discuss that and, and other people would phone in and share their, their um, stories. There, there have been some people in my life who'd rather I'd not revealed as much. And as I get older, I look back and think, oh, maybe I should have, you know, my kids are approaching teenage years and at some point they will go through that stuff and go, why did you say that? But that's the cross I have to carry. So. Um, there was a lot of self-discovery on the show. The the one point where I, should, do, you, do you want to know that there was a big turning point where I thought, actually, maybe counselling is a thing. Late one night, it was just before Christmas, gosh, seven years ago. Um, I do the show with my friend Catherine Boyle, who was producer. And yes, we brilliant. had a phone call from someone who sounded um, drunk. And he was quite, he was quite upbeat. So we were having a little bit of fun with him. How much have you drunk? Blah, blah, blah. And then a few minutes into it, he said, I've taken an overdose and I'm going to, I'm killing myself and I'm outside and I have no idea where I am. 
boom, suddenly, you know, emergency procedure. Catherine went out of the studio to get on the phone to get to dial 999. I then had to spend the next 10 minutes trying to work out where he was. Okay, he was somewhere near Plymouth. All right, what can you see? I can see this, I can see this, I can see this. A few people phoned up and said, I think he's here. Catherine's on the phone to the emergency services. There is a man who is he's dying here. And I had to keep him on the phone for 30 minutes before the police turned up. And I was just chatting to him. I was asking him what he was do- why he did it. Um, I was talking rubbish to him. I remember we got to one point where I was asking him what his favorite Die Hard movie was. And then I realized actually talking about films with the word die in when he's, you know, it was that. Yeah. And there was one bit where he went quiet for six minutes and I thought he died, really thought he died. And then he came back after six minutes, all slurred. Half an hour, the police rocked up, took the phone. We've got him now, we'll deal with this. And I burst into tears. I burst into tears. The little follow-up to that story, he went to hospital, he went to ICU. He's alive. He, he he certainly lived through that. He died and they brought him back to life. So it was a proper thing. Um, and I spoke to him a couple of times afterwards and he's, he's a very troubled gentleman. I don't know if he's still with us. Um, but after that call, I kept thinking, what did I do right and what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently if I'd have had some training? You know, it was just instinct I was working on. What could I have done differently if I'd have had some training? And that was the seed that grew into a few years later when the opportunity arose. I thought, I'm going to sign up for a diploma in counselling. Well, no, that's fascinating. And and, uh, how has show business prepared you for counselling? Um, I was going to say something rude, and I won't. So I bring. I'm coming back Please, from that. You can. Well, um, yeah. No. I'm, 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 no. How has it prepared me for it? it? It's really interesting. It's prepared me for long periods of being out of work, and, and you know, and worrying about money. That's 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 something. It's it has. I have worked with so many from every walk of life. You know, I have worked with homeless people up to some of, you know, like the biggest rock stars in the world and everybody in between. And I have learned that everybody is just as valid. Doesn't matter if you're, you know, you're sleeping in a doorway, doesn't matter if you're living in a mansion. We're all the same. We're all open to depression, to anxiety, to addiction, to loneliness, to inability to sustain relationships. And it has taught me to treat everybody absolutely equal. I mean, that sounds like an obvious thing, but I didn't have that. Um, It's taught me that. It's taught me not to be afraid of anybody. And I tell you when I learned not to be afraid of anybody, I got to interview Ray Davis of the Kinks, right? Flippin' love the Kinks. He's he's well known for being a tricky interviewer. I was terrified. And his people came in and said, you must not ask him about the Kinks. I thought, come on. He had a new album out. You must only talk about the new album. You must not ask him about the kinks. And I was terrified, right, because of his reputation, because of that. And he came in and it was a really crap interview. And then we had to stop. There were technicals, Paul, which is something I know you know about. And my producer, (laughs) Eloise, said, we're going to have to stop. because." And during the break, I lived in Muswell Hill, which is where he's from. And I said, oh, I'm from Muswell Hill. I live live on this road. He said, all right. Do you know this pub? I said, no, I don't. But do you know this curry house? He went, oh, yeah, no, it's a great curry house. And we bonded over a curry house in Muswell Hill. And just before we were about to start, he said, Ian, you can ask me anything you want. And I mean, it it, it sounds really silly that I was scared. But that moment, I completely relaxed. I went, oh, my God. He's just a human being. He's just a human being. All these PR people are making this myth. And yeah, he's a little bit grumpy, but that's because he's wary of his history and he doesn't want his history to be sullied. And that was a real moment, Paul, when I got it. Oh my God, they're just humans. (laughs) They're just humans. Everybody is the same. We're all going to die one day. There's a jolly thought. We're all going (laughs) to die one day. Absolutely. And that's it. And that is the great leveller. Well, I, I was interested because when I was uh, doing some research on you, I, you were talking about when you were doing the 11 o'clock show yeah. and you had such imposter syndrome. And I think you've just explained what I thought when I was uh, hearing you say that, which was we've all got imposter syndrome. And yeah. well, actually, no, probably the only people who haven't got in- imposter syndrome are psychopaths. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so once you realise that, everybody is the same and the, and the great thing about what you and i have done which 
kind of, I think, answers the question is we've met the highest people in inverted commas in the land and the lowest. And we treat those two imposters the same, don't we? Yeah. I went, I'm in, I'm in uh, 12 step recovery and I went to a men's retreat um, and it was like, oh my God, I've got to spend the whole day with a group of 50 men. This is, this is awful. I cannot do this. And I said to a friend, I said, I'm terrified. He said, Ian, look around at everyone here. They are all terrified. They are all terrified and they're pretending they're not. And once I'd got that, once I looked around and I realized, oh, shoot, they, they are. It, again, it was another level. And that's a great thing. I can, I, can, I can go into like public places and parties and stuff. I choose not to because I don't enjoy them, but I can. And I can look around and I can see that most people, a lot of people are scared. And a lot of people don't quite know what they're doing. Um, humans are fascinating Paul, you know, we're all so vulnerable, we're all so fragile, and there'll be some people that style it out. You're right, I think psychopaths are, are slightly different uh, in, in that respect. Uh, and some neurodiversity is, is also slightly different. It takes away some of the fear. Um, but, you know, the thing I've got from, <laughs> the thing I've got from counseling, I say again, is that we are all gonna die. And at some point we all worry about that and we all consider that and we all think, well, what will my death look like? What will my legacy be? Um, I don't wanna die. What can I do to stretch this 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 game out even longer? Um, and there's not a lot, there's not a lot we can do. Maybe maybe eat well, exercise, don't smoke. That might buy you a couple of years, but you know, you might get hit by the bus but there's on no the way guarantee. to the grocery. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. Um, gosh, that's a little bit morbid. We're all gonna die, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> this is the humorology podcast, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and we've we've um, both died a few times on stage, I can guarantee it. Well, by the way, you're not a comedian until you've died. And well, you and I spent 10 years at the comedy store. You you did uh, a lot of stand-up in the early days. I did a bit, but yeah. actually every comedian that has died at some time. I've been seen pretty much everybody yeah. die. Yeah. You know, on the on the circuit at some stage or the other. Yeah. And the idea that that doesn't happen. But that is it's kind of the analogy for life. And if we're talking about uh, um, humor is that it's not what happens. It's how you bounce back. It's yeah. also how you frame it, because, by the way, comedians, as you know, we love talking about the times we died on stage. Oh, the war stories. Yeah, of course. War story, yeah. And go on, sorry. No, but I was just going to say that in in sense of that in the sense of why the the whole humorology product project is about is about how can we use humor to make our lives better. Mm. It, and that, that comedians and people with funny minds are reframing constantly, aren't they? Great stand-ups. I I was never a great stand-up. I did it. And uh, as a means to an end, I couldn't get any acting work. So I thought, well, let's do some stand up. And as soon as I got the 11 o'clock show, I stopped doing the stand up because I was not great. I'd have good nights, but I was not I was not great. Material wasn't very good. But uh, comedians are great because they, you know, I've I've been roaring with laughter with comedians joking about illness, disease and death, you know, and a, a really great comedian can look at the mundanity and the fears and the the tragedy of the world and make it humorous not everyone's gonna i also think the great comedians are are the ones that are the most divisive where people either really love them or really really hate them they're the ones for me um that do it but you talk about dying on stage it took me a long time to embrace failure i learn more from failure than I do from success you know if I'm just having good radio shows all the time I'm not pushing myself I'm not learning anything I could go in always go in the radio and do something really safe let's do a phone in about old sweets or whatever really really safe but I would go in and I would I would push it I would I would try things and if they didn't work I would be able to go home and go right what what didn't work there what was wrong with that what if i tinkered with it a little bit and did it slightly differently but we don't like failure there's a great book by brené brown i don't know if you're aware of brené brown she wrote a brilliant book called daring greatly and it's about having the confidence to step out of your comfort zone go and stand in the middle of the arena get dirt on your face and try stuff partly because it might be really successful and work also paul 
you really feel alive when you're out of your comfort zone. You really feel alive. And um, yeah, I'm a big fan of trying stuff and, and it, it, may not, it may not work. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I love the whole thing about which is very important for everyone. If you want to grow, you have to be prepared to fail. Yeah. I always say, if you're going to fail, fail funny. And what I mean by that is you kind of have to reframe it and go. One of the things about human beings I find is nobody really likes you telling them the stories of how you were brilliant. Let me tell you a story about when I was really successful and yeah, I did this. It humanizes true? you. Yeah. And I don't know about you with your mates and everything, but they love a story about when you died on your ass. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or you tried to get off with that girl or boy or whatever and it didn't work. That to them is great. What's because... that? There's, there's an old Chinese proverb, like, you know, uh, th there's nothing funnier than your neighbor falling off a roof, you know, and it is, we like that. It's that I was thinking the other day, you know, the cruelest people in television, the cruelest people in television are the producer and the cameraman that when it's been snowing and it's really icy, set up their camera at the end of the street because they know people are going to fall over. And they and we <laughs> see it every year, you see it on news. And it's it's funny, but it's really really cruel. But it's funny, you know, people falling over on on the ice. You know what? You want to be the person falling over, as long as you never, as it doesn't make you go, I'm never going out again. Yeah, yeah. Because of the humiliation that that occurs, and don't you think that I mean that's one of the tricks is to keep on doing stuff that puts you out of your comfort zone that makes you feel a bit awkward. Yeah. And you were, you were saying something to me that was very interesting from a psychological thing that you are working on being able to do this better yeah. in real life as well. Yeah. Every day is a lesson for me. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm so lucky that I've, I've had so many tools, you know, I, I say I work the 12 steps in the AA and NA program, completely life-changing because we look at our history about what we have done wrong, but people we have we have wronged. What was my part in that? Instead of going, yeah, 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 no. But the reason I did that is because he said, no, no, no. What was my part in this? So there's a real looking at that historically, and also looking at it in the present. So every day I go to bed and go, right, what did? How did I interact with people? Could I have done anything better? You know. So, so there's that. So I'm learning through that. I'm also learning through, um, you know, this. this we talk about taking brave steps. 
two and a half years ago, I lost my job on talk radio <clears throat> during the pandemic. And everyone, oh, you'll get another job. You're Ian Lee. But you know, Paul, showbiz doesn't work like that. You, 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 you're only as good as your current job. So I had, I was faced with having no work, doing some stuff online for a few quid, but not having, I'd always defined myself as, a, as by my job because I'm, because I'm not, I don't like myself. So I'm Ian, I'm a radio presenter. I always define myself as that. So when that job ended, I was lost. I didn't know what I was, but it came at a great time um, because it was a couple of years after we'd had that guy taking his own life, trying to take his own life. And it suddenly I had some time on my hands and someone mentioned to me a course about counseling and it, everything just aligned at the right moment. And I thought, well, I'm in my late forties. I was never very academic. I was terrible at school, terrible exams. I'm going to take a punt and sign up for this course. And it was, it was terrifying. You know, it was, it was, it was so out of my comfort zone. It was a two year diploma, really kind of um, uh, intense course. Normally these are over a few years. This was, this was quite intense. And I did it. And I would drive every Thursday, I would drive for two hours down to East Sussex to go into this college and sit in this college with lots of other wonderful, talented people. And I would, would, I was making myself vulnerable. I was daring greatly. And so many times I wanted to quit so many times, you know, I, I was not very good at the essays. And when I'd get a failed essay back, that I had to rewrite. It was devastating, but I did it. I did it. I, 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 I wrote my own script, um, as Fritz Pearl says, and, um, I, I went and I passed and I came out of it the other side, a different person. This course was life changing. And um, I'm desperately trying to remember what your question was. Oh, so God, that's, that's the ADHD. Um, and it, is, it has helped me and it is helping me on a daily basis. Look at my strengths and my weaknesses and what I can do to change some of those. So in answer to your question, yes. <laughs> you just met adhd then paul you were just speaking to adhd no but it well yeah yeah but it's beautiful it flows beautifully uh i was really interested when you were talking in there about your learning and what you were yes. taking away from this because i think it's very relevant to the whole uh humorology project it is the whole thing about your attitude mm. um and getting your attitude right in order to change your life. And I, I love the phrase, which I think was originally coined by Dr. Richard Bandler, was uh, the meaning of your communication right. is the response you get. Yeah. So you really have to go, look, I can't go around going, oh, those fuckers didn't understand me because I was very clear and I didn't everything. No, if they didn't understand you, it's your responsibility. Yeah. You have to take responsibility for everything you know and it sounds like you've been through that kind of route to sort yeah. of go yeah it's down to me why do all of my romantic relationships ended badly it's their fault was my thing it was their fault oh hang on a minute what's the common factor oh the common factor is me so is there a possibility it might have been my fault you know and no that is, way and exactly and that is the <laughs> thing you know why why do a lot of my jobs end badly those bloody bastard but oh hang on i'm the common factor maybe it's something not entirely necessarily but something to do with me and once i started looking inwards and looking at my part in society and my part in relationships and my part in arguments and fights and situations that have gone wrong i was able to to start shifting and changing that behavior i have to say um you know the attitude is is a big part of it i have to say i'm helped significantly but with my attitude because i'm on some fantastic bipolar medication I was on antidepressants for a long time found out i was bipolar and so i'm on some great medication which helps me level out i, I tend not to get the massive highs, I tend not to get the sweeping lows. They still come sometimes. So I am, it is easier for me to look at my part and look at my behavior and shape the way I behave, partly because of medication that um, I'm on and because I've got a great psychiatrist that can help with those things. If I was not on that medication, I would be in a significantly worse 
place. I just think it's important to mention that. I know not everyone's into medication, and I do think perhaps antidepressants are overprescribed, and you know GPs are not necessarily the best people to administer those because you've got a seven-minute consultation, and they don't know the latest science and all of this, and I've been very lucky that I could afford to go private. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I, 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 I would like people to know that a lot of the reason I feel so sorted now is partly because of finally getting the right combination of meds. I'm interested in the whole medical thing because I do think it is uh, very useful. Mm. I, I'm always questioning, not sceptical, I'm questioning of whether our brain can then work to those meds without yeah. the meds. If you know what I mean, is it just does it teach us how to do? Because I think there's a an element whereby the 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 brain can remember. We're going really off off let's, off. Let's go here. off. <laughs> but the brain can remember how it works. Yeah, and so can trigger those things. And I just wonder uh, when people are on meds for the whole of their lives. Yeah, if the, if there is like an argument for going. We've taught the brain how to do that. Now can we pair it back yeah. until we can do that naturally anyway? That's interesting. I don't know. I don't know if the brain can learn that. I do, I, yeah, I do think antidepressants are overprescribed. It's, it's a quick, easy thing to do. Um, so I think there's too many of those. I do think that sometimes people do only need antidepressants for a short time, a few months, maybe a year, to help them uh, uh, overcome something. And I would suggest that that short period of antidepressants coupled with talking therapy, I think those two, I think if you just, I, I, I do think, I would highly recommend if people are on antidepressants to also engage in talking therapy. So there is some kind yeah. of rewiring of the neural system going on. Um, I do think I have accepted that I'm going to be on these bipolar meds for the rest of my life. Bipolar is slightly different to, to depression. Um, but I've accepted I'm going to be on these meds for the rest of my life because when I come off them, I'm fucked. You know, it, I get those swings, I get suicidal, I get, you know, I, I start buying expensive cars, whatever, I swing up and down. So I think it's different for different people. Um, but I don't think we stand much of a chance when, you know, psychiatry is so out of the reach of most people because psychiatrists, what's that, 300 quid an hour if you're lucky? Um, and GPs are great they're not trained in neuropharmacology, you know, it's that they can't be, and they've got seven minutes to assess a mental health condition. Um, so what am I trying to say? I don't know if your theory holds true. I don't know enough about the brain is quite possibly. Um, I, I, I do think simply relying on antidepressants is, is wrong. But again, Paul, you know, I'm a counselor, right? I'm now a psychotherapist. And the people that come and see me are the people that can afford me. It's, you know, it's, it's my job. And so I charge. Um, and if you go to your GP and ask for a talking therapy, it might take a year to get eight sessions booked in. And then it's a very specific type of therapy that is not necessarily the right thing for the reason they've, they've approached. So I really think, you know, we want to have less people on antidepressants. Well, then let's invest way more into the National Health Service in terms of talking therapy. You know, it should yeah. be it should be easy for people to get. You know, people who are suicidal might wait a year for the for them to get an NHS counselor, which is incredible. It's ridiculous. No, I I, I completely agree. And uh, but it, that's a whole other podcast. It to be is. Honest I, with oh, you. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we're always talking about humor let's say let's do some jokes well yeah no but i i'm i'm interested because you are are, are prone to self-deprecation yes um is it is it important to be able to laugh at yourself and but i sometimes think that you've taken self-deprecation to the nth degree yeah yeah and and do you have to pull yourself back from that and does it have an effect I am fucking brilliant. There you go. Let's turn it around. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I'm, I'm getting better at it. But I, I do think there is, I do think it's it, self-deprecation can be funny if it's played right. I think it's a funny thing to make jokes about oneself and one one's own inadequacies. I think that's great. I can't make jokes about your inadequacies, Paul, but I can do it about me and that's okay. And I think that there is definitely humor in that. I think, yeah, yeah, I've gone too far 
sometimes it's generally when I'm having a very low mental health swing you know I mean flipping out I kind of had a breakdown on an ep on a show on talk radio where I just realized no one was listening that the whole show was pointless and I'm a piece of shit and that's not a great thing to have when there's a microphone <laughs> in front of you so yeah I have been very down on myself and I I am naturally very down on you know what people might call my achievements in um in show business and stuff like that yeah well it's interesting for me because now you're counseling other people i'm i'm wondering if there's a light bulb moment where you go actually um because i i have a belief system and you may argue against this but that if you say these things often enough they become your reality yeah yeah okay. so even though you're you're doing it in a jokey way and everything i'm not sure that the psyche actually takes it in that way yeah. and it suddenly makes things worse on that level yeah oh i'm I'm a big fan of affirmations i think if you repeat something enough it, it certainly has a, a an impact here I am much better now, Paul. I, for most of the time, I know that I am enough. I know that I am enough. I don't know. I don't, I've always needed to call it an external locus of evaluation. And I've always needed people to tell me I'm good for me to feel good. How many people are watching this TV show? Oh, we're over a million. I must be good. Oh, we've dipped under a million. It's, I'm, there's something wrong with me. I need, yeah. you know, I need, it, need to get a hundred likes on a tweet for it to register. That's historically. I am now better at being enough. I know I'm a good dad. I know I'm a good counselor. I know I'm a good partner. That's good enough for me. But a lot of it came from Paul, um, you know, very early on, my first sort of big job was the 11 o'clock show. And I always thought that would be the start of me then going to America, doing a TV series in America and getting parts in movies, right? And it didn't happen. But it did happen for at least two other people on that, three people on that show, Mackenzie Crook, Ricky Gervais, Sasha Baron Cohen. They went off and they had the careers that I thought I was entitled to. And as I saw them get bigger and my career kind of slowly working backwards, it confirmed to me that I'm, I was useless. It confirmed to me that I was no good. It confirmed to me that, that I had been right all the long, all along, and that I am a piece of shit. And it took a long time for me to get out of that and to realize well, that's their journey and the very best of luck to them. They're having a great time. Congratulations. That's not my journey. My journey is something different and I just have to go along with it. But for a long time, yeah, there was a lot of resentment around their success. And how did that manifest itself? Was it uh, was it anger? Was it cocaine? Sort of cocaine. Oh, really? It was yeah, cocaine. But it wasn't the only reason. I mean, it wasn't the only reason I became a drug addict. There were many other reasons, you know, stuff in childhood, all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it was it was cocaine, and you know, and I think cocaine is such a horrible drug, and and I think cocaine addicts, it is turning their anger at the world in on themselves. It, I was taking cocaine because I hated myself and it's a very hateful drug. So yeah, and I kind of fucked up my career because of that anger and because of that that drug abuse. I became unreliable, I became argumentative. I would, I, you know, it, you've met people, Paul, who've, who've been on that. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible, horrible drug. No one, no one has ever become a better person because they've done a bump of coke. It just doesn't happen. And, and I, I, I pretty much ruined my career through that addiction, part of which was inspired by the resentment of, of my peers who had become more successful than me. And so that added to your self-loathing yeah. and your low self-esteem. Yeah. And and I'm interested in what got you out of that. Was humour part of the, the... Did you see the ridiculousness of it or oh, the funny side of it? When... I, boy, oh boy, I do now. Boy, oh boy, I look back on some of that. You know, you go into a 12-step meeting and the thing that strikes people is the laughter is the laughter and you think well you can't why are these alkies laugh why are these drug why are they laugh what's funny and it is sharing what we call war stories and yeah i look back on it now and a lot of it was really tragic and really sad a lot of it was funny you know like just i mean uh, you know some of the stuff we do to get drugs and and the, the the constantly losing them you know where i've hidden them and i cannot remember where i've been yeah i look back and it was it a lot of it was funny and i can say that because i survived and i'm clean and sober now but a lot of it is funny you know and and you're absolutely 
right, what's the point in getting sober? What is the point in living if you can't have a laugh at stuff and if we can't have a laugh at ourselves? And as long as my behavior is improving, I can laugh at what I did when I was a kid. I can laugh at what, uh, you know, I did when I was high. Um, yeah, humor is is a huge part. I don't get people who don't laugh. Don't get it. Something's missing. So do you think that that period after the 11 o'clock show where you were looking yeah. at Sasha Baron Cohen and Ricky Gervais and Mackenzie Crook, you lost your sense of humour in, in one sense or did and cocaine replaced it? Oh, internal sense of humor, yeah. maybe. Cocaine knocks any sense of humor out of the park. Yeah, I'd, I'd lost my sense of humor. I was taking everything way too seriously. I was taking myself way too seriously. And I look back and think, oh, God, why didn't I just relax? Well, you know, why? What a waste of time. What a waste of money. What a waste of all these fun things. But I do remember working with Ricky on the 11 o'clock show. And we got quite close. And... He was he was almost going to be the co-presenter with me, but then they got the brilliant Daisy Donovan. And there was a real debate before he came on the show. Do we want him on the show? Channel 4 didn't want him. And the office, the 11 o'clock show office, I remember we all went into the producer's room to watch a video going, right, is this funny? And half of us went, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen. And the other half went, it's shit. And it, he almost didn't get on that show. And I'm so glad he did. I have never laughed as hard. It's not quite true, but my kind of presenting partner now, Catherine Boyle, makes me laugh a lot. But up until that point, I had never laughed as hard as I had sat next to Ricky Gervais. Even just this, this will mean nothing, but we're in my dressing room once and there was a Venetian blind and he just was waving it and he just started going, ooh, snaky lady, right? Absolute nonsense means nothing. I was pissing myself at ooh, snaky lady. Honestly, I have never... He made me laugh so hard. He's one of those people. I'm not really followed his career recently, but he's one of those people who's just funny bones is what they call it. And you would just sit in a room with him and you could not breathe. You know, you'd be begging him to stop so that you could catch your breath. Wonderful. With your psychology hat on, why do we love people so much who make us laugh? Because it makes us feel good. I guess it makes us feel, it makes us feel good. It makes us feel part of a community, perhaps. Um, you know, I probably had a bit of a man crush on Ricky. You know, I, I probably wanted to 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 be him, so I kind of had a bit of a man crush. Um, we, you know, the chemical stuff for laughter, endorphins, and all of that stuff. That's always good. Life can be really shit, right? And it's nice to be taken out of that. You know, who I've got the heating off because I'm I don't want the heating bills on. You know, I don't want the heating bills. I put the heating on when the kids come and stay. And that's the true situation of where I am. If I think about that the whole time, I'm going to go crazy. So if there is something to take me out of that, if there is you know something that can make us last, that's great. And I do look back on that. You know, Gervais plays arenas now. He plays 20,000 people a night. I had him in my dressing room, you know, on on my own. I had that on my own for hours and hours and hours. And that is something I will always, always treasure. And also, you know, Sasha, the Ali G, we kind of forget now what a phenomenon Ali G was. It was huge. It was the biggest comedy thing for a couple of years in this country. And then, of course, it went to the States. And um, while I didn't have that much to do with him, I was in the studio with 500 audience members when the Ali G films were being played out. And being in a room of 500 people all laughing, you know, to the point of it hurting, it's great. There is something lovely about being in a communal environment where everybody is laughing. It's, it's joyous. It's joyous. It's a step closer to God, I think, you know, laughing. I think it, it takes us somewhere like that. I would call it state change. Go on. And uh, well, I I don't know about you, but I I think that it's one of the underused things for whatever it is, counselling or psychotherapy and everything, yeah. because it's the way to get. If you can get somebody to laugh at their their issues, you've already taken them to another place. Yeah, yeah. they're already having to look at it from. Uh, from the comedian's angle, yeah. what's funny about that? Yeah. And so suddenly their state has changed. And then you can stick some learning in 
And if they're in a good state, the learning will stick. Yeah, I think you're right. Listen, when I'm, because I've retired from show business now, I don't do it. And I'm, it's, it's, suddenly, as soon as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm quitting, I'm doing my last ever radio show. I got loads of invite for podcasts. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, thank you. I've, I've started turning them down now. I've got a clutch I'm going to do, but I've started turning them. So thank you, Paul, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Um, so I am not, when I'm counselling, I'm not in there cracking gags. And that was a lesson I had to learn, you know, because you, you know what it's like. You hear, you hear the, you hear something. You think, oh, I can, I can make a gag there. Our natural instinct is to go for it. Yeah. I had to learn in college, not with clients, that you don't go with it in the counselling room. So I, I'm not there cracking gags, but there is a lot of laughter. And for me, the, you know, the laughter. You're right. Suggests to me that some progress has been made with this issue, whatever this issue is. The fact that the client is now, you know, sometimes laughter is there because of shame or or anger or fear. That's okay, and we can look at what that is. But sometimes you're right. The the laughter is fucking. I'm, I'm swearing too much. I do apologize. The laughter is bloody hell. I was carrying that thing around with me for years, but look how ridiculous it is. Look how silly it is. Like I'm holding it in my hand and it is ridiculous. And I can laugh at you now because you are, you have no power over me. So yeah, you're right. It is, you know, I think that laughter should be encouraged and welcomed in the counseling relationship. Definitely. When you've got a counselor, you have to trust that person. Yeah. And isn't it one of those bonding things that that builds trust quicker than anything else? Yeah. If you go, I mean, uh, uh, you and I had never met before today, and we've already. And we'll never uh, meet again, Paul. I guarantee yeah. it. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad I've made that impression. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, seriously, but really, you were so uh, understanding, and then we had a laugh over the fact <laughs> all the notes had gone to shit, oh. and we'd done everything. That was the bonding point, wasn't it? Where oh, we, were, we were laughing. For those who don't know, I, so we were supposed to meet at half 11. I logged in and Paul went, I've lost all your notes, uh, but we'll carry on. And I said, look, if, if you want, I can go and make a coffee. I got nothing today. I'll go and make a coffee and I'll come back in 15 minutes. And you went, okay, that's very, very kind. I came back in 15 minutes. You still didn't have the bloody notes. Now, <laughs> do you know what? Me... 10 years ago, I might've got pissed off at that. I might've gone, yeah. right, well, do you know what? I'm not, I'm not doing it. You're not, you know, and, and, and that shows where my head was at. Now I think it's hilarious. And it, it was, and I was, it's partly hilarious because it's not my problem. I, I know what technical issues are like and I hate them when I'm in them, but it's not my, it's your problem. And it's funny. And um, I genuinely found it funny. I genuinely have nothing to do for the rest of the day. So I'm, I was happy to go off, you know, um, but, it was it was it was funny you and your producer your producer trying to talk you through how to access files <laughs> on a computer it's funny you know no one's no one's dying you were cool had you been upset and stressed about it i wouldn't have laughed with you had you been you know really getting upset and worried oh my god this is a disaster i wouldn't have laughed with you but i could see that you and, and david your producer were both you know, you, it was a ridiculous situation. It's funny. Let's have a laugh about it. It's fine. And you're right. It Suddenly we have a connection. Suddenly, yeah. I've never met you before. And, I, and I'm joking. I would love to go out for a coffee with you. But we've never met before. But suddenly, in the face of a mini disaster with a lowercase d, suddenly we've got a connection going. And 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 I think that's that's really important to acknowledge those moments. Before we just go on to uh, this is a tape stop. Would you want to cope with your curtains? Yeah. I'm silhouetted out, and I've yeah. given strict instructions: do not have a light behind you. <laughs> and I did not follow those instructions, David, Mr. Rose. I, I humbly apologise. There we go. Uh, uh, hey, this has been a um, great rehearsal, Paul. Do you want to start recording now, and we yeah. do it for properly? We could do, couldn't we? <laughs> I've had so much fun. Uh, sorry, I'll oh. shut up. Let me shut up. You, you do your business and then. I'll... Thank you for listening to part one with Ian Lee. Yep, that was just part one. He was so good that we had to make a part two. Listen out for it in the next podcast. The Humorology podcast was hosted by Paul Barros. Produced by David Rose. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes, and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.